0: Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. Hi, Steve. Charlene and I are thrilled to bring you this very special bonus episode of our podcast with a very, very special guest, a guest who needs no introduction. And if you think she needs an introduction, you've probably stumbled onto the wrong podcast. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Senator Elizabeth Warren. Welcome, Senator.
1: Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you, Charlene. I'm delighted to be here with you today.
0: So really appreciate you joining us, particularly at this time with so much going on in the world and that we're, we also just wanted to say up front that we were, we were both, our whole team and our circles, were very inspired by the boldness and vision of your presidential campaign. And we really have deep appreciation for your continued voice and leadership on the national stage. And we're really delighted to have this conversation with you.
1: That's very generous of you to say thank you. You know, I, I feel like running for president, get out there and you fight for what you believe in. And it didn't work out the way I'd hoped, but by golly, I'm sure glad I did it. And so glad so many people were in that fight with me. And you know, the truth is, I still don't give up the fight.
0: Right, exactly. It goes forward. So the world's dealing with these two simultaneous crises right now, and we want to dive into both of them but perhaps we could start with the police killing of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matters protest and how Congress is responding. And I know that there's been different bills and things moving forward, some hearings in Congress. So can you tell us what steps you and your colleagues are taking to respond to this moment?
1: Yes, so the way I see this, it's not about just one thing here or one thing there. It's really, we need systemic reform to end police brutality. And every single elected official from members of Congress to mayors to governors to district attorney should be completely overhauling our criminal justice system and policing at the federal level, at the state level, and at local levels. What a big part of this upcoming bill is that we need real federal muscle to hold law enforcement officers and police departments accountable. So we can start with independent investigations of prosecutions of officer-involved shootings, ending qualified immunity, uh, passing my bill that I have with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley to hold police officers criminally liable for denying medical care to wow. people in custody. Um, I've co-sponsored this Justice in Policing Act that is the principal big bill that looks like it may move. Uh, Senators uh, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris have led on this. Uh, the Congressional Black Caucus has been uh, put this together, and its principal points are to demilitarize the, the police, to ban chokeholds, to establish federal standards of force, and a whole lot more pieces if you wanna talk about more of them. But let's be clear, because I wanna always make sure this is in the conversation from the beginning. We should be spending our budgets, not on imprisonment, but on community services. Uh, Less money on locking people up, more money on lifting people up. That is how we will decarcerate Mm -hmm. and make our communities safer. And then one last point: we need to remember this is not just about criminal justice. We need to root out the racial disparities in our healthcare system, our education system, in housing policies, in the workplace, in every part of our society. So that's kind of all the pieces, as I see it.
0: So on that on that systemic piece, now people are talking about it, it's not just policing; as part of a larger system. And I believe you're co-sponsoring with Cory Booker the companion bill to H.R. 40 in the House, the bill to create the, examine the legacy of slavery and explore potential reparations options. So can you tell us about how you came to decide to sign on to that bill? And then do you think there's any chance to get more support for it now in the Senate, maybe more co-sponsors now that you know, uh, Mitt Romney is marching with protesters and tweeting out Black Lives Matter? Mm-hmm. Might there be more support?
1: America was founded on principles of liberty and freedom and built on the backs of enslaved people. This is a stain on America. And we're not gonna fix that until we're willing to talk about it and address it head on. And make no mistake, it's not just the original founding, it's what has happened in this country generation after generation after generation. So, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee has a bill that would appoint a congressional panel of experts who are studying this so they can make a report back to Congress so that as a nation we can do what's right and begin to heal. I, you ask can we do this? You know, we have to remember this is a moment in history. Mm-hmm. And it's a moment that comes because a lot of good people have been doing a lot of hard work for a long time. But that's how it is we get ourselves into a place where we can make change. So I'm I'm hopeful that if we keep marching, if we keep protesting, if we keep pushing, if we keep putting these bills up, we can start bringing in more co-sponsors and that we can actually move this forward. This is a moment for all of Congress to get itself on the right side of history.
0: I was struck at how many people are moving and the expansion and the debate. I was reflecting on, right? You have the Republican nominee who ran against the African-American president marching with Black Lives Matter. Tweeting out Black Lives Matter, so clearly something is happening in terms of people's opening and their evolution. And we had a chance to listen to your podcast recently that you did with Abby Disney on her All Ears podcast, and you were talking about your political evolution over the decades in terms of your family. And I did want to ask whether or not you've had a similar racial evolution over the course of your life, and as you. Come to understand these types of issues in general and also in terms of your campaign. If It did feel like as the campaign went on, you started talking more and more explicitly about the particular challenges facing people of color. So I don't know if I just imagined that or if there was that evolution and so how did it come about?
1: It's a, it's a very good point, and the answer is I learn, uh, I listen because it's important to do that and I have good partners. I have been so blessed in this life by people who will teach me individually, or people who teach me through books, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates book. And on and on, you get a chance to listen, you get a chance to learn. I think that's critically important. But here's a part I wanna, I wanna underscore. You know, for a long time, I was an academic. I was never in politics. Right. But what I studied was people who go broke, families mm. that go broke. And always, and I was a, I'm a data nerd. It was collect information about what's happening. And from very early in our studies, we were, my co authors and I, were among the very first people to go out and study families that went bankrupt and collected information about them. And the key information we collected, one of the pieces was about race. And so, piece at a time, as I was building up a picture of what was happening to working families in America, a part of it you could always see was how race kept intersecting and how African Americans who went to college were more likely to file for bankruptcy than whites who never went to college. Why would that be so? Why they had more trouble uh, on the income front, uh, on the debt front. So it's been an issue I've, I've worked with, and so when I ran for president, one of the key things I did is in one area after another, after another, housing. Big housing plan, 3 million new units we need to build, but we need to address the consequences of systemic racism that was built into the housing system, redlining, Jim Crow laws that prevented African-Americans, prevented people living in communities of color from building up wealth. So I had a specific part addressing that. Um, Education, powerfully important. I think we need to cancel a lot of student loan debt, Mm -hmm. but looking specifically at how African-Americans more likely to borrow money to go to school, uh, borrow more money while they're in school, have to have a harder time paying it when they get out of school. So Mm the specific parts addressing that and so on through the system, the entrepreneurship gap setting aside specific money to help close that gap. Because in every place we're talking about here, the black-white wealth gap, uh, the health gap, uh, the housing gaps, all of those intersect, and they are all the product of racism, the product of white supremacy, and the product of a government that has not addressed those aggressively and affirmatively. And for me, that's what it means not just to say, you don't get to say, not a racist it's to be anti-racist right. to go after this to attack it directly and that means you've got to be willing to talk about
2: race thank you for those words i want to turn to the current economic crisis yeah. But first, I wanted to continue on this topic around your learning curve and becoming more aware around issues around race and racism in this country. I wanted to see if you had any advice for how progressive white people can be most supportive during this time. I know I'm hearing that. You're probably hearing that. What can I do? I want to learn. I want to do better. I saw a tweet in which you said it's important for whites to speak out yes. against issues of racism. And I know a lot of white people are struggling right now on where to start. So what do do you say to them?
1: So I start with a pretty direct statement that white progressives need to be active, anti-racist allies in this moment and beyond. This is a commitment for your lifetime. And here's what it means. Educate yourself. Listen and learn everything you can about the history of racial injustice in America through books and through the lived experiences of African Americans. The second one is donate and show up. Listening, learning, speaking out, that's just the start. You also have to act. Uh, Give resources to ensure that the fight for justice continues in local communities and show up. Uh, Get on the front lines with the leaders of this fight. Protest. Make calls to your elected officials. Talk to your circles of influence. Use every tool you can to make the difference. And a third one, center Black voices. Uplift the voices of Black activists and leaders and elected officials, the people closest to the pain Are the ones who should be at the forefront of the fight. I also think that being anti-racist means fighting for anti-racist public policy. Being race neutral just won't work. Racism has for generations shaped every crucial aspect of our economic and political system. So to be anti-racist, we start by putting in place proposals that deliberately shrink the black-white wealth gap. Uh, Pass my housing bill so that we can get a first-of-its-kind down payment assistance program for people living in formerly redlined communities. Put environmental justice at the center of our response uh, to the global climate crisis mobilize resources in communities of color, help make investments there, uh, uh, help with entrepreneurship, help shrink the black-white entrepreneurship gap. There's so much that we can do, but the part we have to remember is nobody gets to sit back anymore. This is it you got to step up.
2: That's right. And now let's turn to talking about the coronavirus pandemic, and in particular, this resulting in ongoing economic crisis. Uh-huh. We are seeing more than 40 million people newly unemployed. That number will go up. I know Congress is considering a further relief package. Federal Reserve Chairman Powell has called for further stimulus, and the Treasury Secretary has said there should be another round of relief. What are you advocating to be done? And what should people be pushing their representatives in this moment to support? Yeah, so it's a great question.
1: Uh, I have
2: been focused on what we need to do to keep families
1: afloat, not just during this pandemic, but all the way through to the other side of this recovery. This is a moment of crisis, but it is also a moment of great opportunity, opportunity to fix the massive holes in our economy, and in our society. So I've put forth an essential workers bill of rights to make sure that every worker who's showing up every day during this crisis has health protections and safety protections, that they have paid family and medical leave, they have hazardous duty pay, they have a right to be part of the union and to have their voices heard. Um, Another part of this is to remember that the November elections are just months away. During this pandemic crisis, uh, it is important that we hold our elected officials accountable, and that's that means voting. My plan would let every single eligible voter vote by mail if they want to, provides a postage prepaid envelope for it, requires states to proactively mail out Uh, ballots to every registered voter and make sure at the same time that we protect in-person voting, making it accessible, making it safe, uh, making sure there are plenty of polling locations so people don't have to wait uh, for hours in line to do this. Now, voting is important to our country. And it takes money to get it done and get it done right so i 've proposed a five billion dollars to go into voting so there 's enough money to support it so in addition to that workers Bill of rights voting, I also believe we have got to put more money right now into child care. I have a proposal for fifty billion dollars to help uh, prop up and sustain our childcare system. You know, the way I see this, childcare is critical infrastructure, just like transportation. Parents cannot go back to work without reliable and affordable child care. And without emergency funding, there are gonna be a lot of childcare providers who will never be able to reopen. So we've got to get some support into that. Um, another one, if I could just kind of run through the list here, We need to provide immediate and total relief for small businesses that are facing collapse. They need more resources. Um, We also need more money to go into uh, testing and uh, contact tracing so that we can put a damper on the spread of the virus. That will make it safer for workers and safer for customers, and if you make it safer, then people have more confidence, and that's how you can begin to get people back into the system. Look, those are just some of the priorities that I'm fighting for in this next package, but this crisis truly is our chance to deliver meaningful change for families, including Black families that have been locked out of opportunity for too long. That's why I keep pushing in this. We should also have a provision to cancel student loan debt, to increase Social Security payments and disability payments, to put power in the hands of workers. That's what we need to do.
0: So you had mentioned before, you know, you're coming out of academia and then moving into the political sphere. And so if you could share, because it seems like there's definitely this economic crisis is probably going to keep going. That it could be similar to 2008, 2009, where you have a Democratic administration coming in in the middle of a financial crisis. And so one of the things that I don't think I even appreciated at the time was you came from academia, conceptualized a whole new federal agency and built it and implemented it. So I'm just curious, more internally, like what gave you the confidence? What gave you the the sense that you could make that transition and move into an arena that certainly a lot of, you know, women don't move into, a lot of academics don't move into?
1: You don't get what you don't fight for. (laughs) And that's really what it was about for me. Um, Look, I always thought I would stay on the academic side. I mean, it, it truly had never crossed my mind that I wouldn't. Um, I thought I was one of those people who would go out and do the research about what was happening to families and make the good proposals about we could do this and we could do that and it would help with families. And I'll just be blunt. I watched year after year after year as things just got harder. As African-American families shut out of being able to buy houses Uh, through Jim Crow laws and redlining up through the 1960s, finally get a chance to buy homes and then get preyed upon by the, the Wall Street folks who figured out they could make a bunch of money by selling really awful mortgages to people who already owned homes. That's, by the way, how that financial crisis started. Started in communities of color with outfits that peddled Terrible mortgages to people who'd already bought homes, and once they'd stripped wealth out of communities of color, began to do it everywhere else, and then ultimately, of course, crashed our entire economy. So for me, it was a case of I kept talking about the research, I kept talking about what was broken, I kept talking about what we needed to do to fix it, including this consumer agency. And shoot, there just comes a point; it's not enough to talk about it. You got to get out there and fight for it. So that's what I did. I banged on doors in Washington to try to get people to go with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, Once we got it passed into law, uh, President Obama asked me to come and stand it up. And that's what I did for a year. And by the way, can I just do a little commercial for the CFPB? Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has already forced the financial institutions to return more than $12 billion directly to people they cheated. And even though the Republicans have tried to take the legs out from underneath it, and it's not doing quite as much as it ought to be doing, by golly, it's still out there and in that fight. And when the Republicans said they would never confirm me to stay and run the agency long-term, I went back to Massachusetts and ran for Senate and beat an incumbent Republican. So I just think of it this way. If there's something you really believe in, and I believe in change, Get out there and fight for it because you're not going to get what you don't fight for.
2: So Senator, speaking of women and girls who fight for what they want <laughs> and and persist, my daughter Kaylee is eight years old oh. and we have just a couple of minutes left and she would love to come in and ask a question. Sure.
1: Hi, Senator Warren. Hi, Kaylee. Why
2: can't kids that know about politics vote? Well,
1: uh, it's a good question, Kaylee. But right now we've set a certain age so that we know that when kids are voting, that they're voting their own independent ideas instead of maybe just the ideas of a mom or a dad or a really gruff grandpa. Uh, And so we try to pick an age. Now I know some people are more independent earlier and some people it takes them a lot longer, but we just kind of try to pick one it's fair for everyone. But here's the thing, even if you can't vote, there's a whole lot that you can do, Kayleigh. Um, because you can get out and make your voice heard. You can take your mom to a protest. You can make phone calls. Uh, you can make sure that not just your mom, but everybody in your family and all of your friends vote. So you may not be able to cast your own ballot, but boy, We need you in this, Kaylee. We need you to help us build the right future. Thank you. Thank you you so
0: much. Thank you. Great. So I know you've got a tight schedule, Senator, so we're going to let you go. And just really want to thank you so much for making time. We really enjoyed this conversation. And again, we really appreciate your voice and your leadership out there. And thank you for all you do.
1: Oh, thank Thank you you. for all you're doing. Thank you, Charlene. Thank you, Steve. Thank you.
0: Okay, take care. Well, that was great. That you know we 've seen her on the on the trail out there all these years, but just to have her there, and I really appreciated the how strong and unequivocal she was on the racial justice pieces and the off from the advice of progressive whites and I hope Kaylee liked her uh, conversation with her too.
2: oh, she sure did. I could feel her little heart racing, and uh, I mean mine was racing too. It was a really special moment for us, and it 's one of these reminders like because we 're in a shelter in place situation. That's why we had this opportunity to be together to do this from our home, and I just really appreciate it. Um, Senator Worm was amazing, and for us, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get to talk to her together.
0: I'm so glad it all came together.
2: She was so generous with her time and her answers. Yeah, were well, fantastic. great
0: with girls in particular, too. Yeah. So. All right. So that is our special episode with Senator Elizabeth Warren. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. If you've not already signed up at the Democracy in Color email list, please do so so that you get all the latest developments in case we have other future major presidential candidates as well to join in a special fashion. Help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve p tweets this podcast is a democracy in color production produced by olivia parker with support from charlene chang and april elkier recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of san francisco until next time persist and keep faith